Thanks for listening to the Best of Coast to Coast podcast. If you want to hear more than just this highlight from the program, become a Coast Insider, and you can listen to the full episode plus recent shows covering the mysterious death of Kurt Cobain, the possibility that government may soon reveal the truth about UFOs, and the power of witchcraft as told by an actual practicing witch. Start listening now by heading over to coasttocoastam.com and signing up for Coast Insider. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Let me tell you about Paul DeBoli. Paul is an assistant professor of political science at LaSalle College in Newton, Massachusetts. He teaches courses like the American presidency, American political institutions, the politics and history of the Cold War, the conspiracy in American politics, white collar and organized crime, terrorism and issues, and national security as well. Prior to teaching, he was working at and has been a consultant to several government agencies, including the United States Marshal Service and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Executive Office of Public Safety. He also worked on uh, as a campaign aide to the late Senators John McCain and Lamar Alexander. Paul, welcome back. Good to have you. Oh, thank you, George, for having me very much. I really appreciate it. And we'll have you round out tonight. We've had different thoughts and theories. Uh, i got to tell you, will we ever get to the point, though, where we get this whole situation solved? Well, it depends on what you mean when you say solved. I mean, you know, couple of standards of proof, like if this was a civil case, for example, it would be a preponderance of the evidence, and I think that's what we're, I, I think that's the standard that we're looking for. I mean, we're never going to have a videotape of the gunman, you know, uh, uh, taking that fatal shot. We're never going to have a, uh, a confession. Uh, so I think we just have to prove to a reasonable degree of likelihood, uh, you know, what our conclusion is in the case, so. Now, when we talked uh, last, we talked about some different happenings uh, about JFK, of course. Anything new? Uh, yeah, it, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, you know, the research has kind of been going really, really well lately. And one of the things that that I had had unearthed that I hadn't seen before was this connection between Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. Um, they were pretty close. Would it surprise you to know that they lived across the street from each other for 19 years? Uh, you mean in in D.C.? In D.C., yeah. They, they um, uh, you know, uh, their address in Northwest, they were literally across the street and two houses away. And, you know, Ro- Rosemary Lincoln, who was President Kennedy's longtime uh, secretary and confidant, had written a book in 1968 uh, in which she kind of quoted um, uh, JFK saying, and she and and her um, I'm paraphrasing here is that horrible Mr. Hoover blackmails uh President Kennedy into uh putting Lyndon Johnson on the ticket in 1960 and he threatened to expose his you know his, his history his of womanizing et cetera. Womanizing, yeah. um and and you know you, you have to wonder to what end why did Hoover do something Hoover didn't do something unless there was something in it for Hoover and, and although Johnson was a good friend you know quote unquote friend of the FBI um you know, one might think that who would be, you know, again, you know, times were different uh, in 1960. Hoover, you know, may have had an alternative lifestyle. Hoover had a history of using FBI agents to maintain his home, paint his trim, prepare his taxes, etc. And who better to know what was going on than, you know, his across-the-street neighbor. So I, I, I kind of have this pet theory that it might have been Johnson who was, you know, 
manipulating the puppet strings and that Hoover was, uh, uh, you know, was, was his instrument for getting a lot of that done. Uh, but we're still completing the research on that, but it, it does pose an interesting theory. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. funny, too. I was, I was actually reading a book uh, as part of the research for my book, uh, and it was like my 30 years in the FBI by a gentleman named, named uh, uh, Bill Sullivan. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, he, and um, he, he describes a scene where he's sitting down with John Dean uh, about you know, coordinating some, some FBI activity to coincide with Nixon's enemy list, et cetera. And um, John Dean said, well, I bet you the Kennedys used, used you guys a lot. And uh, Sullivan's response was that, no, the Kennedys kind of kept us at arm length. There was this antagonism between um, you know, Mr. Hoover and President Kennedy, uh, and they never used us for very many things. And then John Dean looked at him and said, well, what about the John? He said, how, does it, how, how do we rate in relation to other administrations? And Sullivan looked at him and said, compared to the Johnson administration, your use of the FBI is Spartan. Well, I've had uh, we had some a number of guests on tonight, Paul, talking about their various theories, and one, of course, is convinced that the Secret Service is culpable, primarily negligent, but he does believe that they had several agents that might have been involved in this. What do you think? Uh, I don't think that um, I don't like to ha- to, to poo poo somebody's research, uh, but I, but I you know. When you say culpability of the Secret Service, I mean, you have to look back at the fact that Secret Service was founded in 1865. They didn't take over presidential protection until 1901. So from 1901 to 1963, presidential protection was really in its, in its infancy. Um, originally, when it was started, there were eight guys on the presidential protection detail. There were 32 on the presidential protection detail in 1963. There's over 300 uh, on the detail now. Um, uh, you know, and, you know, they weren't quite put, they were put into a protective role, but not into, to a, into a, into a proactive anticipatory role that we have right now. Uh, so I think part of that is the national, is the natural evolution, um, of, of an agency. I mean, I have, I have a copy of the duty roster for, for November 22nd, 1963. There's only 29 agents in Dallas. Well, that's it? That's it, including the vice president's detail, the president's detail, the first lady's detail. Uh, and I, I think there were less than a dozen in the, uh, in the motorcade. You know, some people were still at Love Field securing Air Force One. Right, and only a, only a couple around yeah, the president. Only a real handful. And I think what your um, guest might have been alluding to is there were a number of witnesses that ran towards the grassy knoll after the fatal shot. Yes, that's and, right. And there are a lot of claims that they were, they were confronted by men in business suits identifying themselves as Secret Service agents. And even a couple of the police officers, um, you know, testified that Secret Service agents were, you know, on the grassy knoll. But the duty roster doesn't list any Secret Service agents assigned to that area. And I was wondering, okay, who could these guys in the dark suits brandishing the credentials be? And I remember back when I was in college, I had read... Uh, G. Gordon Liddy's autobiography, Will. And I remember a passage in there about him getting Treasury credentials so that he could carry legal in, in Washington, D.C. Trotted out my copy of the book, and you know, I reread that section. Uh, and uh, one of the offices uh, in, in Treasury HQ used to keep Treasury badges and blank you know, credential inserts in the office. And basically, you know, Hoover... I'm sorry, uh, Liddy dummied up a memo, 
put it in his file. He was issued with Treasury credentials, and he became a Treasury agent. And then he says, it was odd that they kept those there, but you have to remember what it was for. And those were for CIA agents, because you know, the CIA, their, their statutory mandate is for, is for foreign intelligence and work in foreign surveillance. They have very, very little power in the U.S., although they were engaged in uh, a lot of domestic activities. And all that had to happen is that the CIA headquarters would have to send a request to the, uh, to the Undersecretary for Administration and Finance. A set of credentials were issued in whatever name they asked, and then CIA officers suddenly became Treasury officers. So if you, look at, so if you like the whole CIA uh, angle on the assassination, it makes perfect sense that the guys in the dark suits brandishing the, credential, the Treasury Department credentials mm-hmm. were actually CIA officers. And we know that in 1963... The U.S. Secret Service was part of uh, part of the Department of the Treasury, so it's easy for someone to infer Treasury credentials being Secret Service. But again, 29 agents on duty, nobody on duty in Dealey. As a matter of fact, the first Secret Service agent. Um, what would you call it? Negligence, stupidity. What was that? Uh, and, and and the car was uncovered. Car was uncovered, which was which was President Kennedy's. Uh, you know, choice at the time. Uh, I am very, very reluctant to 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 call it stupidity or negligence. Um, I think they had a set of procedures. I don't think the, the the protective procedures had matured to the level that we see today. Now, let me ask you. You know, we're we're all talking about, and we have for years, the uh, Zapruder film. But you talk about something called Orville Nix in that film. Tell us about Orville Nix first. Sure. Of all. Orville Nix was um, this really interesting gentleman. He was an HVAC repairman for the General Services Administration, uh, and he had gone to Dealey Plaza that day with his new movie camera uh, to, to 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 photograph the presidential motorcade and to photograph the president. And there's a great ver- and, and there's all kinds of controversy as to whether the film was altered before it was returned to him or not. But there's a great piece of um, a piece of film available on YouTube, and it's the Orville Nix film um, shown at 25 at, at one quarter speed, 25 percent speed. And if you watch the film very carefully, and 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 he was photographing from across the street from where Abraham Zapruder was. So if you look at Abraham Zapruder and his film, you see at frame 313 there's the fatal shot, and it mm-hmm. appears as though the fatal shot comes from the front right hand side of the president, it impacts him on the front right-hand side of his head. But then if you watch the Orville Nix film at 25% speed, what you see is this, is this pink cloud at the front of his head. And then it appears as though, the cloud, and it's due to the motion of the limousine, the cloud just moves back to his head and then dissipates. And you can see a small chunk of something coming off, which appears to be a portion of the president's skull. And it's just, and that taken in conjunction with the with the Zapruder film would more tend to indicate a, sh- a shot coming from the front, but you know it's independent validation of the of the Zapruder film, uh, but it's actually a much better angle. And when you see that cloud, it is absolutely the most amazing piece of photography I've ever seen. What do you think the cloud is? Is the, it the, gun smoke? No, the the cloud is um, basically when. The skull is very dense. When a, when, when a bullet enters the skull, uh, it displaces the material that's there already. Okay, skin at the outside, bone, uh, cerebral fluid, blood, etc. Dust. And that displaced material has no place to go until there's an exit wound. So in that fraction of a second when the bullet enters the skull, 
all of that material gets extrudes from the entry wound until there's an exit wound. Uh, and then that, that, and then any displaced material goes. So in JFK's case, it would it would go out the back. So it's when, like it's like the remnants of of uh, when you drill into wood. Sure, that, I mean they, they call it blowback, but that's exactly what happens. Uh, so if you see frame three thirteen of the Zapruder film, it's clear that there's a headshot. If you couple that with the Orville Nix film, there's no other conclusion that you can come to other than the fact that the bullet came from the front right. Are you convinced, Paul, that one, there was a conspiracy, and two, there were more than one shooter there at the time? There would have to be more than one shooter. For, that, for, the, for, the, for the bullet wound to enter President Kennedy's skull in the front right would seem, in the front right would seem to indicate uh, a shooter coming from in front of President Kennedy. And as I started to say, uh, that uh, uh, Secret Service agent, a gentleman named Forrest Sorrells, who was head of the Dallas Secret Service Office, was in the was in the lead car. His test, his his statements clearly indicate uh, that the bullet came from slightly behind him and to the right, which is consistent with a bullet, you know, with a, with, with a shot coming from the grassy knoll. And then they bring Forrest Sorrells into the Warren Commission, and they do not ask him one question about where the bullet came from. They questioned him about how Oswald was held in custody, what were the security measures, etc. So you have one of the most believable, most experienced witnesses on the scene, and they don't ask him any questions about where the shot originated. Why not? They were so wedded to the magic bullet theory. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.